So I'm just trying to figure out like how that way we don't get like derailed. And when derailing we talk about, is fine. Like, we just need main... to plow through. We just okay. need to plow through, Jason. We need to be like the Osmonds. Do you remember the oh, Osmonds God. were like, um, no, I'm not that old. No, I mean, not do you remember are. them, but they were noted for being the one take Osmonds that like Donnie mm. Osmond could record a song in one take and they mm. wouldn't need to do it again. We mm -hmm. need to tap into that energy, that one take energy. Yeah. 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 Okay. Hi, I'm Jason Marcos. And I'm Barry Hamaguchi. This is Flop Redeemer, the weekly podcast where we discuss the stories behind our favorite pop flops and why you should give these songs a second chance. Today, I'm talking about Tony Braxton, the R&B superstar who unbroke our hearts in the 90s, but who many people assumed fizzled out in the early aughts. I'm here to tell you how that almost happened but didn't, and why her last three albums, including one released just last year, are among the best work of her career. Do you know who Tony Braxton is, <laughs> audience? D yeah, d d do they? I mean, I, I assume there's some, I mean, most people, I don't know. I don't know how old people are. If there's anyone born after 2000, you wouldn't. Because what? I mean, her biggest hits, I mean, okay. Her biggest hits were like 96, 97, 98, you know, like at that time. Um, okay. Because she came okay. on the scene in 92. Yeah. So... I would say like a um, lot of people probably think of classic Tony Braxton as the early 92, 93 stuff. But like, mm -hmm. I feel like her biggest hits were like The Dark Child, 97, 98. It was definitely, well, so like her biggest hit, uh, you know, of all time was Unbreak My Heart, which was Diane Warren. And that was on that second album, Secrets. Um, and that like, you know, took over the world. The album went eight times platinum. But that you know, she's never she's never replicated that success, and I think that that's why a lot of people just kind of assume she faded out. She did have some. She did have some really good songs in two thousand. I mean, okay, so um, I think that is. Am I wrong in thinking or feeling that her biggest, like most ubiquitous hit, mm -hmm. this is gonna be controversial, is he wasn't man enough. It was a big hit. In that it, I mean, it was it was a big hit. That's off her 2000 album, The Heat. Um, it marked a it marked a tonal shift away from like balladry mm -hmm. and sort of you know sort of R and B balladry and went more slightly more in like a hip hop direction. Um, and it was a big hit for her. Uh, I don't believe. I wasn't. I wasn't ready for all. For, oh, I mean, for, for no, that these are stat, these are you know? these, are, but, these know, are not facts. These are not facts. These are feelings. It, I mean, it went to. The, I mean, the album. The album itself. <clears throat> the album itself uh, was at number two on the Billboard 200. He wasn't man for me. Wasn't man enough for me. Was a big hit. Um, she earned two more Grammys for that album. So it, you know, it it was a huge deal. The I first just, three albums of hers are huge. Yeah, I just, I I always just wonder like. I always just wonder about like that moment of he wasn't man enough being kind of more of like Tony Braxton's pop crossover moment. Mm -hmm. Cause mm -hmm. I think that that video, I remember, cause I remember that video had like, was Tyson Beckford in that video? I think it was Tyson and I think it was Robin Givens. Yeah. yeah there was like a, there was like a, she had her, or like her squad. Right. Oh, and the, the, oh. the, were the elevator doors opening and closing? No, they were in a bathroom, I think. 
I just remember a bunch of different men and they were kind of like, oh, no, 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 no. That's you're making me high. Oh, shit. That's from the previous album. Oh, what was the man enough for me video? It's where she, um, she go. I think she meets, I think it's Robin Givens. She like meets her in the, in the bathroom. They're like in a club. Okay. And she's like, yeah, you can have him. Basically he wasn't man enough for me. Okay. I just thought that like he wasn't man enough was like Tony Braxton's big arrival of like the TRL era. And I think that that's why a lot of songs of that era, especially seem much bigger than things that were happening before. Does that make sense? Yeah, I can. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, obviously TRL didn't exist in 92, 93, yeah. didn't exist in the early 90, mid 90s. Um, when I don't know when TRL started. TRL, that would have been like 98, I think. 97, maybe. Okay. So it would have been around that. Yeah. But, but like there was nothing really on secrets that would have, that would have really gotten you that gotten her on there. And yeah, I remember, I remember the heat when the heat came out. I had just, it was my freshman year in college and I had Ethernet for the first time and I had bought a gateway computer, <laughs> which is like such a big deal. And it came with like the best sound system. I had like a, a subwoofer and like, you know, those two satellite um, speakers. And I would play The Heat. The Heat opens, the actual song, The Heat, has this bass line that goes, do, 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 do. And it like, it's so distinctive. And I I would play that so loud. I was like, I was like I'm so cool with my subwoofer rocking the dorm with uh, Tony Braxton. I would just leave the door open and let everyone hear my music. Um, oh, you were that guy. I was. I was. I was trying to like create an identity for myself. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, my I guess my point was that like for some reason in my mind, that kind of third album era Tony Braxton stuff is the stuff that's emblazoned in my mind most vividly. But... Mm. And I will, I will say that like, I feel like the TRL era had a, had a way of like amplifying things in a slightly misleading way, right? Like TRL would have you believe that like Britney Spears was like the biggest pop star of that era, which, you know, in a lot of ways is true in a music video era, but Britney Spears has a surprisingly like low number of, um, number one singles. Mm-hmm. I think she only has like three. Mm. Out of all of her singles, out of all of her music videos, and yet, like, TRL really, like, you know, inflated that period of time and how big it felt like music was. Especially well, pop it's interesting, music. it's interesting you say that because I think, you know, in the, in the case of Britney Spears, I think that's absolutely true. I think, but I think in other, in the cases of other artists, it really, it really helped them, you know, become bigger deals like Destiny's Child or... Um, you know, even Tony Braxton, right? Like this, this album was huge for her too, and and kind of continuing her, uh, you know, her reign as like a sexy, uh, you know, full blooded woman, <laughs> like R and B star, right? Like because the motion like not picture like the visual, tweens. not like the yeah, exactly the motion picture visual. I think it, you know, it just gave you another avenue for connection with the, the voices that you were hearing, right? Yeah. So when you're <laughs> seeing this iconic imagery being developed of what do you mean the motion? Oh, you mean like a music video? Imagery? Music video imagery. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. like motion picture. <laughs> pictures in motion. Motion pictures. <laughs> but you know, it's I was like, like, are you talking about like the trailer of the two thousand? <laughs> like, what are you no, talking no, no, no. about? But you know, it's those it's those things yeah. that you start to connect with people on a, a deeper level when you're seeing, I don't know, you're seeing Beyonce cutting someone's hair in the Bills 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 video, or sure, sure, sure. sure. Um, yeah, it created iconography. 
exactly uh, in a visual language and, and shorthand let me let me let me let me go back a little bit let's ask like what are your favorite tony braxton songs if you have any i mean are they from that era or no i mean so i i'm probably like i mean you and i were a little bit young maybe when tony braxton first debuted i don't were you even allowed to listen to secular music when tony braxton baby i had oh my god breathe again because um, you would have been like 10 when B- breathe again no, came. i was like yes, yes 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 well i was like 11. did you have to get I, it like I, after the fact well i would li- i would hear it on the radio okay like you know because i did at that point i did have a radio like i had a boom box so i could listen to like it was nothing hard I, it was like essentially like i was able to listen to in my room i was able to listen to like what is like coast FM, like adult contemporary okay. radio and so you know she'd kind of blown up on that right like yeah. you know, breathe again um and then I had the album Secrets when I was in high school. And okay. that's the one with You're Making Me High and um, Unbreak My Heart. And um, I I still have that that CD. Um, I, you know, I listen to it regular. I listen to the album regularly, but I, I look at that CD every time I move. And um, that album, I, I would listen to that on repeat, mm. like in, throughout high school. I was like one of those kids. Like I, I liked, I, I was aware of current music. I you know because I, I as I got a car and and all these things I could I, I was more exposure I could control what I listened to it was just like what we couldn't listen to like as a family like in the car okay. I had to like be careful about what I what I played well, it was like Brandy because in Mariah Carey you know they were safe but um and then and then Tony Braxton eventually okay but, but yeah no I, I yeah the, the the that album Secrets was like <laughs> I I imagined my like that was I imagined myself that being like the soundtrack of my life at like 14 or whatever and it's really kind of strange when you think about it now but i wanted to be the character of her in in those songs like how could an angel break my heart and um talking in his sleep all of these songs like they're just so they're exactly the sweet spot of r&b that i love okay and that's why I was curious about you because you're much more at this point you were like more indie and then pop and, yeah and but so like I was like mind, what's your mileage with Tony uh, when when Tony Braxton's debut album came out I was in the seventh grade oh yeah I was like sixth sixth to seventh grade so this is very much like the Tony Braxton album songs like Breathe Again um, Seven Whole Days. I don't think that they played another sad love song at dances. I feel like the slow dance song <laughs> of seventh grade dances wasn't oh, was breathe again. Mm, breathe again yeah. would be like your your seventh grade uh, boyfriend gave your seventh grade girlfriend a mixtape with breathe again mm. on it. I actually distinctly remember this. One of my friends. Oh, my friend that I fell down the stairs with. Um, when we were five or six years old. Oh, yes. Uh, revisiting our falling down the stairs episode. The friend that I fell down the stairs with, um, when we were in middle school, he had his first like seventh grade girlfriend and he was really excited. And he was like, oh, I made her a mixtape, blah, 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 blah. He shows me the mixtape, shows me the track listing and shady little seventh grade me looks at the track listing on it. I'm like, excuse me. Tony Braxton breath again because he forgot <laughs> to put the E on the end of breathe. <laughs> but I mean, so that's the thing. I think it, like when you get into the, like Tony Braxton's second album, like 96, I'm what mm-hmm. a sophomore or junior in high school. And about the, mm-hmm. at that point, like I'm kind of tuned out to this music, but like 93, I feel like 
sixth, seventh grade, very much still formulating my own kind of like musical tastes. I think we've talked mm-hmm. about this, that like before 1992, you know, the majority of the music I listened to was like my parents' records. Lots of like Beatles mm-hmm. and like Fifth Dimension and like just stuff around the I mean, house. I do love the Fifth Dimension. Oh my God. <laughs> but by and large, <laughs> like my own music, the music that I would own on cassette tape or whatnot that I would get myself. I didn't get it until I was like, you know, sixth or seventh grade. Like you start going to the record store, you start yeah. developing those tastes with your peers. Um, yeah. And so 93, like, yeah, like I love Breathe Again. Mm-hmm. I love, I love, I know I cap on this song. But I actually do like the song You Mean the World to Me. It's such why are you saying it like these are like surprises? That song is amazing. Like, it's every- a good song. I just I just I I I always say like I that song comes on and almost always I think it's gonna be take a bow. <laughs> just for the first like two or three bars, I'm yeah. like, is this take a bow? And I'm like, no, wait, this is not how take a bow starts, but it sounds like yeah, it's, it's that it's it feels, from that era that babyface. It's uh, ba- era. and they're both babyface songs. I feel yeah. like you might be able to sing a little bit of Take a Bow over You Mean the World to Me. You might be oh, able to create yeah. like a very easy mashup of those two songs. So that's where I kind of, my sweet spot for Tony Braxton is. However, however, mm-hmm. later on, I become really fascinated with Tony Braxton. Uh, well, you know, I think you're going to talk about this. She disappears for mm-hmm. a bit. Mm-hmm, she comes mm-hmm. back with a new record deal. And she comes out with the album, what was it called? Pulse? Is that what that mm-hmm, album was called? Mm-hmm. I bought, I purchased that album because I love an underdog story. I also uh-huh. love the song Yesterday off that album. Yeah, yeah that's a good song. Yesterday. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. if, I don't know if Neo had anything to do with that song, but, you know, in that era of those kind of um, R&B-ish, ballad-ish Slightly One Republic Ryan Tedder ish. It's very ballads. Beyonce, like Beyonce R and B. It has that. It has that vibe of like when Irreplaceable came out, and then Yesterday oh. came out. There's that. Um, there's the Ashanti song that I talked about. The way that I love yeah. you. There's yeah. a, a Latoya Luckett song called um, Not Anymore. Mm-hmm. They all have. They all have like a little bit of connective tissue to me, and I, I love them all. But that's in the in in the middle of it. I kind of black out on Tony Braxton. Mm. Um, I mean, and that's that's fair. There's a reason. There's a reason why. Okay, and that's what we're gonna get into. But before we do that, let's just take a break. I mean, we'll we'll you know tell us about how we can less Neville and le- uh, Neville, less navel gazing and more substance. Um, listeners, I would like to mention the website and email to you. So I'm gonna do that right now. We have a website. <laughs> It's uh, flopredeemer.com. There you can see links to all of our episodes on whatever platform you want to listen to us on. There's going to be playlists featuring all of the songs that we talk about today because you might want to listen to these songs instead of just hearing us talk well, about them. Well, not all of them because some of them oh. don't exist. So you're going to have to you know, go to our website to and do get a, the YouTube. Yeah, we're going to have to do a little bit of research on this one because Tony Braxton has been erased We'll find out well, why. Well, just, just, yeah. Anyway, um, I just hit my mic. Um, <laughs> email us. Email us at flopredeemer at gmail.com. Tell us uh, your thoughts, feelings about Tony Braxton. Tell us what your favorite Tony Braxton songs are. Or give us suggestions. Uh, you know, I I did log in. Okay. Good, I good, did good. I did read. Thank you, Will. Your, your email was great. Lots of good suggestions in there. Lots of food for thought. Um, so, yeah, listeners, 
send us your suggestions. Like, who can we talk about? What are what are what would you like to hear us talk about? We're right on top of that, Rose. <laughs> Let's take a break. Oh. So we're back. We're back. Talking about we're Tony back. Braxton. Um, and I was just, I was just telling Jason, I, the, the thing about Tony Braxton with me, and we were trying to figure out what my favorite Tony Braxton songs are. I feel like when she was launched, I knew two things about her. One, her voice was very deep. She talked about having a man voice a lot. Hmm. And that too, she was like discovered at a gas station. I don't know if that was true or if that was just like, she clarifies urban, that urban legend. She clarifies that she had, you know, the, 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 the lore is that, you know, she was singing to herself while pumping gas and someone discovered her and, and wanted to record her. Um, she clarifies that actually the gas station attendant was someone she knew who was like a sometime producer. And he remembered her from talent shows that she'd done in like high okay. school. And so had approached her, you know, at the gas station while she was pumping gas okay. to, to ask to like produce some music for her because yeah it just sounded like such a true like cinderella story mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. but all that to say that like sometimes tony braxton's voice is a little bit too low for me i like it when she pushes her like the range a little bit when she goes up yeah and she does have the range she does have the range just she very does have the range so down there <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> she's a contralto right so she's she's got a range like like share has range it's like surprise, like she can go. It's low for a woman, high for a man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Tony, you know, just because I feel like most people know Tony Braxton, but just for some quick, you know, some bullet points to get us to like where we where we need to be. Since her debut single "Love Should Have Brought You Home" on the film tra- soundtrack for Eddie Murphy's Boomerang in 1992, Tony Braxton has sold over 70 million records worldwide, including 41 million albums, and is one of the highest-selling female R&B artists in history. Um, it, fun fact: that "Love Should Have Brought You Home" was originally written for Anita Baker, uh, but she was pregnant at the time, and you know Tony had been doing demo recordings. Anita basically was like you should have her sing it hmm. so uh babyface and la reed who had been working on that soundtrack album did that and the rest is history tony's gone on to really to win seven grammys nine billboard music awards and seven american music awards uh, her 1993 self-titled debut album peaked at number one on the billboard 200 and spawned five singles another sad love song breathe again seven whole days you mean the world to me which we just talked about um, I belong to you. How many ways? It she earned the best new artist Grammy that year, along with best female R and B vocal performance two years in a row for the same album. Um, so, I mean, she like because because the release happened so long, you know that she okay. won. She won the the first year it was able to be considered, and the second year for a second uh, track, a uh, second single on okay. the same album. Okay. Um, so like she comes out like a force, I guess is is what I'm trying to say. She follows that up in 1996 with her second album, Secrets. Um, She also co-produced this. It peaked at number two on the Billboard 200, stayed on the charts for 92 weeks, and like her debut, it was certified eight times platinum. So this was huge. Uh, You're Making Me High, which was the video you were talking about where they're like watching the elevator doors and all the the male models are are in there. Mm -hmm. Iconic video. That was her first number one hit on the Billboard Hot 100. And that was followed by Unbreak My Heart, which was written by Dan Warren and was another was like 
It's probably like her signature big ballad. That spent 11 weeks at number one. She won two more Grammys for that album before releasing the third album, The Heat, uh, which we also talked about at the top of the episode. That was released in 2000, went to number two again on Billboard 200, and she won two more Grammys. So, you know, she's won, was it it three? Almost seven. No, six six of her Grammys Mm -hmm. within the first, uh, I guess it's like seven years of her career. But like every album was just this sort of thing, right? Like this kind of unstoppable... She was a superstar, the biggest, probably biggest R&B star at the time, yeah. especially as music was going more pop. She was definitely iconic. And we've talked about other musicians of the era that didn't successfully make that leap from early 90s mm-hmm. to late 90s, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I mean, immediately I think of SWV and how they couldn't mm-hmm. make it work translating their music that was very, very of the early 90s yeah. into music was changing, R&B music was changing, pop music was changing into the late 90s, early 2000s. And yeah, when Tony Braxton released The Heat, I mean, in in a weird way, I remember feeling like she was pandering a little bit. Hmm. I mean, it's 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 a tough decision to make, right? Like you know that music is changing, you know that the song that you put out in 93 isn't going to fly in the year 2000. Yeah. So, yeah, you're going to work with Dark Child, you're going to put out a poppy upbeat song right that's more pop oriented than maybe you had been doing in the past mm-hmm. um but yeah anyway uh, uh, my well, way of saying like i yeah. think I, at the time i was a little cynical about it but now i'm like oh like it's actually quite a feat that she kind of made that leap from you know early 90s to early 2000s successfully yeah and maybe it's because like my background my musical background as as much as like i'm i'm a big pop aficionado like r&b soul is probably the biggest influence in my musical life right it's interesting because if you if you if you think about tony's first album it is r&b but it was very pop at the same time like it it, it was a pop crossover right like you mean the world to me breathe again all of those things were are, are essentially pop songs because they're babyface. secrets was also kind of pop but but definitely had more more r&b to it by the time she comes out with the heat you know, I was, so like I said, I was 18. I had just moved into the dorms. I thought it was really cool. I was surprised at how, it, it didn't strike me as cynical, and maybe because I just didn't have that, you know, I'm I'm so much younger than you. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not jaded. Uh, um, I, you know, I didn't have that sense that like she was pandering. I, I, I was more like as a fan, like, oh, she's transitioned into this sound and it sounds natural, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there were some songs on there. Like I remember um, <clears throat> she has a song on there called Spanish Guitar, which mm-hmm. I, I, at the time, I'm still not a huge fan of. I, I was starting to be like, oh, this is the formula, right? So there's going to be a sexy song. There's going to be, uh, you know, you know, a couple mid-tempo ones that I'm really going to love. And then there's going to be like the Diane Warren ballad because, you know, in every album, like she's going to try and replicate, you know, that that success. And I started seeing that with Mariah, too. There was like five tracks of this, you know, whatever track. Then you have your big one, your hero um, or or in Mariah's case, it was like whatever the um, the current We Belong Together version was. Right. Just always trying to replicate that. So I think I had a beginning awakening of that sense. But I really loved I really liked the heat. And I thought. She's staying true to R&B, but it like sounds current. 
and and I think we've talked mm-hmm. about how how music at that time was it was kind of an interesting place because R and B was becoming more pop and pop was becoming more R and B inflected, and everyone had to kind of adjust their sounds. Like yeah, to, it it like messed up Tamia. Like Brandy was having a hard time, like trying to figure out like which lane to go into mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how to do it. So it, yeah, it it is that thing of like, and I guess this this really is just about that lead single. He wasn't man enough for Tony Braxton at the time. It seemed like she was trying to chase after like Destiny's Child, or she was trying to chase after Jennifer Lopez or Britney Spears, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. pop artists that were coming up at the time, right? And yeah, that were pushing the envelope, pushing music in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. And so in that sense, like I think I think it's mostly about that one song, really, for me. Because yeah. yeah, like to you know, because she did follow it up with like Spanish guitar was a single, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But not like a pop single. I feel like that was more of like an R and B radio single. It was. It was kind of that. It was that. Um, I may have only that. ever heard the song "Spanish Guitar" through you. I may have never. Probably. Heard. Well, it's funny because they, <laughs> you know, this was at the time where everything would get a remix. So there was like a Spanish Guitar Hex Hector remix. Okay. <laughs> so we may have heard it when we were out. I remember. I think maybe one of the reasons that um, he wasn't man enough for me kind of looms so large is. We used to, you and I used to go to those video clubs mm. when we were younger. And, you know, a lot of those video, the, 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 they would always play the He Wasn't Man Enough for Me video as one of the, one of the, one of the things. And I think that also plays into making it seem bigger. Maybe kind of like the TRL of it all, mm-hmm, you know, because mm-hmm. it, it's just so prominent. We um, were in our prime and, pop music consuming days. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There was sort of there was sort of the flattening because it'd be like uh, of 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 genres and artists and time because you'd have he wasn't man enough for me and then you'd have like the followed up by like the new eighteens video, and then lost ketchup or whoever right like oh, lost ketchup, was, yeah right you know, and it's like did you know that that lost ketchup song is like the biggest song like globally still. No, I, when I was looking up girl groups stuff for last week's episode, Lost Ketchup, and I was looking at like globally who the biggest girl groups are. Lost Ketchup mm-hmm. is like number two globally, like the biggest. Are they still releasing music? No, it was just that one song. Oh, just that one that song. That one song is like the second biggest girl group, quote unquote girl group song in the of world. Wow. Anyway. Uh, lost ketchup that was the second time that that name has recurred in my life in like two weeks so i just had to. well and i guess that's what i'm saying it's like you know it's that weird we were at a moment in time where like you would have a tony braxton song and then lost ketchup and then like the 18 or whatever and so you know it's like you have this 30 year old woman and like 20 year olds and then 17 year olds and and they're all like kind of mashed together and they're all competing against each other for space Mm mm-hmm at this time, right? Like everyone trying to, you know, instead of kind of having their own lanes. Um, Cause we're so still in an era at this point where space is limited, you yeah. know, we're, we're used to this all digital, all streaming era where you can get anything you want at any time in the year 2000. Like you still needed shelf space at Virgin Megastore. Mm-hmm. You still needed airtime on trl you still need to airtime on terrestrial radio like well and i only had so many sleeves in my cd holder mm-hmm. 
right? Like I was like, well, you know, and then you you know you'd move the one out to make room, and you're like, well, it's going on the shelf now. Yeah, it's not coming in the car anymore, which means I'll never hear from them again. Yeah, because you always had like the big CD binder at home that maybe had like a hundred discs, but then mm-hmm. in your car you had the one that had like I think mine had like twenty slots in it. Well, mine had more, but it was like it had to be it had to be able to fit under the front seat so that no one could see it and break into your car. Oh, yeah. I mean, I only had the one that was like literally the, the oh. size of a CD case, but like thick. So oh, I think were you it, poor, Barry? I'm kidding. No, I mean, you just <laughs> I, I drove a Civic like you don't have a lot of space to stow away a giant <laughs> I, CD. Hey, I had a Civic, too. That's right. I forgot about your Civic. Uh, our Civic days. Oh, man. Um, that's a whole other podcast. Talk about flops. Oh, your flop uh, car that... Oh, okay, when when Jason got rid of his 1990 red Honda Civic with no... The power steering had gone out. I was with him to purchase a new car and he was getting a trade-in of like, what, like 50 bucks? Yeah, 200 bucks? Giving me 50 for bucks. This, yeah, for something this, like that ancient honda civic with no power steering and while he's signing the paper he's just like oh could you go get my car out of off we'd parked on the street he's like oh could you go get my car and drive it into the car lot so that i can trade my car and i'm like yeah sure so i go turn on your your car i start driving and i've never driven a car that does not have power steering i so i get the car going and i have to make a right turn into the uh the car dealership lot I start to try and do it with no power steering. And I realize, oh my God, I don't know how to drive a car with no power steering. I abort. I'm like, I can't, I can't turn right now. I need to gain some speed. So I fully had to abort turning into the car dealership, go around the block to gain enough speed so that I could get the steering wheel turned enough to like turn your car into the car dealership. Yeah. I mean, and I, I thank you for it every day, Barry, Uh, that car broke down on me on the 405 it broke down on me multiple times on the 405 um and then i got that 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 other car after that and your solara um, yeah my solara and uh i look like a uh i was the only non mid 30s realtor uh <laughs> driving a solara <laughs> that was a fun car i mean it anyway. was except yeah anyway 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 your 100 cd anyway. wallet um did t- was tony braxton it had to, it had in, to, like, your, fit, in your cd yeah. wallet yeah yeah, Tony Braxton was was in there, and then at this point, this is when you're like making mixed CDs, right? So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, there, there, you know, she she had gotten a lot of mileage from remixes at this time, but you know, co- kind of going back to my earlier premise, my my main premise is like a lot of people feel like Tony Braxton disappeared after the heat, or or they feel like you know, because you because you may be asking like, why are we talking about her on on Flop Redeemer? And you were like, why? What is, what is she doing these days between like thoughty IG posts and multiple bankruptcies? Because that might be just all you remember about her. <laughs> but, you know, I'm going to tell you, you know, why you think that and why her most, her three most recent albums are great soundtrack tracks for your road trips and pool days and other things that may be coming up as we enter a potential post. You really thought summer. this through, wow. yeah? No, because because I was like, oh, what what did, you know? What's a, what's a good thing for? Like, why at fifty three, Tony Braxton still has it, right? So so we've established like superstar right up until two th- until two thousand, and then dead silence. There had been some noise. Well, there had been some noise about Tony Braxton. You know, going back to the mid nineties or late nineties, I should say, when. 
she had to declare bankruptcy. Now, do you remember this? Like around the time when Secrets was out, she'd had to declare bankruptcy and it kind of caught everyone by surprise because it was in the middle of the Secrets promotion. And, you know, she'd won all these Grammys. Secrets was huge. And she's like declaring bankruptcy. I vaguely remember that. I mean, I feel like at the time it was becoming more and more common for all of these, especially musicians, like recording stars to be coming forward with like, contract disputes and financial perils. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the thing with Toni Braxton in 1998, so she's like, she declares bankruptcy. Like her albums are huge. She's a, she's on tour, selling millions of records. Okay. She has made $188 million. Secrets made $188 million for LaFace. Her royalty check and and we only know this because like the gag rule, the mm-hmm. gag order on this on the settlements and all the things like expired finally. Um she made $1900. Like TLC before her. TLC had, was also with LaFace, right? TLC was also with LaFace. So it's like hmm, Pebbles and Pebbles. Yeah. Um so I mentioned that Tony had been doing some demos and that's how she got her big break, right? Um doing the demo and what happened was when Love Should Have Brought You Home was a success, they signed her to an actual, I mean, they 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 started working on her debt on an actual album. They never rewrote her contract. Okay. And this is what's called or considered like a substandard. I mean, she she sued basically saying that she'd had a substandard contract. Um, it is typical in the music industry that when you sign a record deal, you know, you get an advance and then, you know, promotion, studio time, all of that stuff ends up getting paid out of your royalties. The you know, so so in some ways you're kind of indebted to the music the record label. It's kind of the system where you're indebted to them kind of mm-hmm. on an ongoing basis. Not I don't know that it's like she misunderstood. It's hard because they couldn't really talk about it for a long time and then, you know, they're all talking about it now. Basically what happened was her record deal had never like had never been renegotiated from when she was doing demos. And she was expecting once the album came out to like make a ton in royalties to pay, you know, whatever she owed. The The details of her contract stipulated she was only making 33 cents an album. So okay. like when she got her first royalty check, it was like 1900 bucks, even though she'd sold like 8 million albums worldwide. And, 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 because because they were because they were basically charging her for all the music video production they were charging her for all the styling they were charging her for you know any of the promotion that they were doing so she's releasing these not only did she not make money she was a million dollars in debt to LaFace mm. so she sued to to try and renegotiate her contract cuz she's like I need a better contract and they wouldn't do it so they were kind of at a stalemate she had to sell her grammys she had to sell her car she had to sell like i remember like hearing on the radio that like they had found Tony Braxton's like abandoned BMW in the desert outside of Las Vegas. Like, and I remember like <laughs> being like, what, <laughs> you know, it just sounded so crazy. And it's, it's hard because, you know, now we have access, you know, we talked about it with, with, you know, you know, just accessibility to music, but also information, right? Like y- there's very few channels for how anyone can kind of tell their story and like what's really happening. And you would only hear it through like snippets on the radio or like, entertainment tonight so yeah. you didn't know like what was really going on but this whole time she's like trying to like <laughs> she's trying to work it out right she's trying to trying to trying to figure it out 
She eventually signs with, she signs a management deal with Barry Hankerson. And we'll talk about him later. Barry Hankerson, you may remember from our JoJo episode. He was Aaliyah's uncle. And he's the reason we can't stream Aaliyah's music. He's the reason that like JoJo had some issues um, for many years in releasing new music and, and getting out of her contract. She signs with Barry, who helps her negotiate a $20 million advance and renegotiate her contract with LaFace. Apparently, there's no bad blood. They were just like, oh, it's just business. Um, but like renegotiated that so that she could have her money and then, you know, have another deal because um, the heat ends up being on, um, you know, working. She works with the same people again. So, you know, it's it's kind of water into the bridge. She moves on. The heat comes out. You know, it's great. But there's that kind of like, you know, there was that noise about like, what's going on in Tony Braxton's life? Like, is she... Is she smart? Yeah, like, you know what I mean? How do, how does a person get like this? And it's kind of like with the TLC of it all, right? Like mm-hmm. we didn't know what really happened until Behind the Music comes out. And that's like in the early 2000s, right? Yeah. So you're just like, what? Did they just piss all their money away? Like what's she doing, right? Yeah. Um. So there's a little bit of that noise around her at the time, you know, even though she's a superstar. That she's just not savvy. Yeah, maybe she's not savvy. I mean, so what's really interesting is because she was making so little in royalties at the time when she was in the middle of the lawsuit, um, she ends up being on Broadway in uh, Disney's uh, like Broadway production of Beauty and the Beast. She becomes like the first black Belle oh. to play. And, you know, it's it's this big thing. What she ended, she only did that because she needed money. She had no source of income, even though she was like one of the biggest superstars at the time. She had no income, mm-hmm, basically. Mm-hmm. She then starts work on an album called More Than a Woman uh, in 2002. While working, while finalizing this album, Tony discovers that she's pregnant with her second child while gearing up to release uh, More Than a Woman. She lobbies Arista because she'd moved from LaFace. Oh, you know what? That was what it was. Sorry. It gets a little complicated as we as we try and dig into these lawsuits later. Mm-hmm. She negos she gets out of her she like gets a she gets out of her contract and gets it all redone. She moves to Arista for the heat. Okay. And that's where she gets her twenty million dollar uh, you know, uh record deal. So she she can finally like be the superstar that she is. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and 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 put that towards other things. Parallel, um, I think um Pink did the same thing around the same time. It was very, I mean, people were moving and it was common, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? You know, and 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 the thing is, is like these album, these record labels, like everyone, it's kind of like everyone's the same, right? Like they're they're all moving back and forth. So it's yeah. like you go from one, it, you're essentially with other people. They're you know you're still working with and people, but so, all the same people are probably moving around the same places, right? Like L.A. Reid, because L.A. Reid was with LaFace. L.A. Reid was with Arista. He was the law in LaFace. Yeah. Later he was with. Wasn't, he was with Island Def Jam when Mariah mm-hmm. moved to Island Def Jam, but mm-hmm. then he went over to Epic and then Mariah went to Epic. So yeah. like a lot of times people are moving around to follow the people, right? You're not the people. It's not yeah. so much about the name, you know, no one cares well, if Arista, you're on, you know. Arista at the time, I mean, that was still the home. I mean, Arista most famously is kind of the home of, of Whitney Houston at the time, mm-hmm. who was still a big star, you know, in the early 2000s. Um, troubled, but still a big star. And so, you know, it was it was a prestige move too, right? Um, so she so she discovers while she's working on this fourth album, she discovers like so they kind of wrapped it and she discovers that she's pregnant. And um, 
she lobbies Arista to postpone the release until after she gives birth because she was having a difficult pregnancy and she'd actually been confined to bed rest. Mm-hmm. Um, they refuse. And they say, no, we're going to keep going with the with the album. That album comes out in November 2002. And it's an instant commercial disappointment because there was no promotion. You know, there are a couple songs on this album that I remember as, you know, when I was doing some of this research. Yeah. Um, the first uh, there was a there's a single called Hit the Freeway, um, which I really enjoyed there. There's a remix of that that I used to like really love dancing to. And I'd play that in the car. Uh, and, and also there's a song, um, me and my boyfriend, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. me and my boyfriend. So she talked about this. She ended up talking about this with like Wendy Williams. She was pissed because me and my boyfriend has a sample of Tupac and, you know, she was getting ready to release. This was going to be like her ne- her evolution from, from the heat. So, you know, she has the heat. She's, she's doing more pop. It's kind of sultry, sexy hip hop R and B. She goes and does me and my boyfriend. And then Jay-Z and Beyonce release O2 or O3 Bonnie and Clyde mm-hmm. has the same Tupac sample. That obviously blows up. And then her album gets no promotion and it has the, the same. And so people like assume like she copied them and it's this whole thing. She was pissed. And I had totally forgotten about me and my boyfriend. Oh, really? This is, I had totally. This is really the one. I mean, I think because of the O3 Bonnie and Clyde thing. This is the only song that I remember feeling like, oh, Tony Braxton was here first. <laughs> like, Yeah. I mean, and that's that's the funny thing. It's like she she did it, but like it got no it got no promotion. And, you know, this is I this don't remember this album to, at all. Well, that's why it kind of just sank like a stone hit the freeway. There was a Hex Hector remix. I keep mentioning him um, <laughs> because he was so big when we were like going to like the gay clubs when we were like young. And um, I used to, I just loved Hit the Freeway. Um, I thought it was a great evolution because I don't think that like many of the R&B, I don't know, divas hadn't really explored their dance music potential at that point. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it was, it was mostly just like after the fact remixes, right? It wasn't just like a hip hop remix. Um, It felt very like just for the gays, right? Like (laughs) here's, here's your, here's your, uh, you know, nine inch cut or whatever the thing was, right? Like 12 inch cut. Yeah. That, that song kind of just sink sinks. Right. So in 2003, she leaves Arista for Blackground records, which again is headed by Barry Hankerson. Big mistake. Who'd been huge. Yeah. Huge mistake. And as I said, you know, listeners to our podcast may remember Barry from our Jojo episode. Um, he's Aaliyah's uncle again, and his refusal to release her library to streaming is why Aaliyah's musical legacy is still largely unavailable to the public. Um, it's the reason Jojo couldn't release music for years and like why she was only getting paid for live performances, you know, versus like anytime her music uh, was played, like she, she didn't have access to that. Um, so she, she leaves Arista because, you know, she's pissed at them for like, you know, releasing this album, this flop of an album and, 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 you know, not letting her, you know, not making allowances for her pregnancy. Um, and and that's a whole thing where, like, there's not a lot of information. You can't go back and be like, but it is one of those things where you're like, well, is that her fault? That's not her fault. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. And again, but we look at it, we're like, oh, that album sucks. You know, like, but, the, you know, when we talk about the different things that we don't know that contribute to someone, like, kind of falling off the radar and dropping out, like... 
you know, who knows what could have been if they just let her come out with it a little bit later or if they'd, they'd worked with her on that. Yeah. Um, and it's pregnancy. It's not, you know, it's not like she stubbed her toe. Yeah, and you have to take a kind of a, you know, hopefully those days are coming to a close, but yeah. I feel like especially back then you had to really be careful and carefully consider your actions about how big of a wave you were going to make. Right. Yeah. Because upsetting your label Back in those days where, you know, shelf space is important, access to media is important, you don't have the same direct access that musicians have now necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, upsetting your label is tantamount to just getting your album shelved. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's, you didn't have direct lines of communication. Yeah. And there was like clear retribution, like steps of retribution that your label could take against you. And you... Mm-hmm probably would have no way of making your voice heard at that time to say like, this is what's happening to me. This is why it's mm-hmm. fucked up. And you know, this is why you should listen to my music, you know, <laughs> like you had no yeah, method I mean, of doing yeah. that back then. Yeah. Because I mean, even if she wanted to go on say like a media outlet and talk about like what was really happening, all Arista had to do was be like, look, entertainment tonight, you air this, this, this interview with Tony will cut you off from every other Arista artist and you'll mm-hmm. never get an exclusive again. You know, like the the record labels have a huge amount of power and, you know, without these channels to get out your own, you know, your own story, like you have, you just can't. So that album just kind of comes and goes. And, you know, we've talked about this before, like, you know, that that's 2003, right? Her last album, which was a hit, was in 2000. Uh, you, you're, she's losing momentum. Right. Like every year that goes by, every album that comes out, like you lose momentum. You know, you're not able to be out in front of your fans in a in a real way. Um, like with social media now. Like you people this is where she starts to disappear, right? She ends up releasing, like with Barry Hankerson on Blackground, she releases Libra uh in two thousand five after many delays. Uh there apparently were a lot was a lot of back and forth between Barry Hankerson and Tony and her husband's involvement in her music. And so she'd married Carrie Lewis, who had been a part of the R&B group Mint Condition back in the 80s, 90s. Mm -hmm. And he'd been involved in some way, shape or form in Tony's first three albums. But Hankerson and his international partners, like they just felt that. And I think you touched on this earlier, that like his involvement meant that there were the, the album was like too ballad heavy, was a little too slow. And they wanted something that was more contemporary, more upbeat. And this is the quote-unquote beginning of the troubles that she has with Barry Hankerson. He he says it, it goes back to her insistence on having her husband involved in, in the music. And she talks about it kind of like in a, in a different way where she was saying like it was really difficult for her, you know, coming from the mid-90s and having this really established sound and trying to adapt her sound to what was going on in music at the time like it wasn't a natural process mm-hmm. it was really difficult for her and you can kind of hear that like in the more than a woman album right like it's starting to go that way and it's like this 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 pressure to be sort of up tempo and compete with all of these other stars and that's not really her lane and mm-hmm. and i feel like you know even as you get into the later the later albums that we're going to talk about like the ones that like are maybe like the least comfortable or the ones that I, I like maybe the least are the ones that are sort of overtly trying to be more contemporary versus like just kind of doing what she does. Mm-hmm. I feel like every pop star or singing star 
goes through this process if they expect mm-hmm. their career to last longer than a decade, right? Like yeah. music yeah. changes in a decade. You figure out like, well, you know, like Diana Ross. Diana Ross mm-hmm. has a 60s way of singing and then she moves mm-hmm. into the 70s. And it's like, okay, can she do the 70s? Yeah, she can do the 70s. Yeah. She makes it work. Can she do the 80s? I don't know. Mm, not really. She, you know, and then you kind of have to just kind of wait it out until kind of your iconic vocals come back into vogue or find yeah. new appreciation. And I think that's, that's Tony Braxton has always been, you know, ready for that. She doesn't yeah. have just any voice of the early nineties. She had like a defining voice of the early nineties. And it's yeah. really like, when will it be her turn again after, you know, so many mm-hmm. years of realizing that like, okay, like there's an expiration date on being a pop star. Yeah. Yeah. And like, where's, when's the mu- musical moment going to come back to, you know, to align where there's production and 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 different kinds of things that will complement that sound again and really kind of, you know, put you back to the fore. So, you know, she talks about, and we've talked about this with with a lot of the other artists that, you know, while she's working on this album, it became very clear that like the label saw her as, you know, she's a black artist. So she's obviously going to do hip hop inflected music here. And this is 2005. So, you know, this is where, you know, a lot of pop, is sort of hip hop inflected. Mm-hmm. And um she talks about being like she's like I don't have a hip hop bone in my body. <laughs> she's like that's not me. I am R&B, you know? Yeah. Like she's 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 not that girl. And you know, she 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 actually wished there were a few more slow songs on Libra and she struggled, you know, incorporating the new sounds into her sounds. Now, one song on this on this album, I know you wanted to talk about. It's called Take This Ring. Love that song. Um, well, it was written and produced by Rich Harrison, who also did Amory's One Thing. Um, didn't he also do Crazy in Love? I don't think he did Crazy in Love. I think he did Crazy in Love. If do he you? didn't do Crazy oh, in might Love, have. he might if have. If he didn't do Crazy in Love, someone was someone was out there, um, you know, putting something in the water to give everyone this uh, this sound. Uh, right. let's see. Oh, he did. He, he produced. Did. He, he produced. Crazy he produced in Crazy in Love. Yeah, which makes sense because one thing sounds like crazy, but it's also good. It stands alone. Whereas like some of the other songs that of that era that were trying to ape that, like really sound like lesser. I mean, here's the thing for me is that I always thought of it as like rich Harrison is out there selling the fish oil, snake oil, snake oil. oil. I've I've, I've said that so many times where I mistake (laughs) fish oil for snake, uh, snake oil. Um, but, you know, there is that thing about producers having kind of like a signature sound that they're trying to make happen. And uh-huh. they're just using it again and again and again. Ryan Tedder did this with mm-hmm. Halo and Already Gone and mm-hmm. any number of One Republic songs. Well, you talk about, you were just talking about Babyface and Tony Braxton oh, and Babyface yeah. and Madonna. Signature, right? like signature similar, sound. Yeah. And I think what was so, but I think what was so um, fascinating about Crazy in Love, One Thing, Take This Ring, um that song Get Right by Jennifer Lopez, Mm -hmm. is it was such a signature sound. It was so out of left field, I feel, when Beyonce did it. Uh Uh-huh. So out of left field when Beyonce did it. I was reading about how Beyonce actually originally didn't think that that song was going to work. And the labels didn't think that that song was going to work. It was just so... It was nothing. It was nothing the like horns, anything we funk, were we were hearing at that. Yeah, the funk aspects of it were so different. It was like discordant in a way that like music was not yeah. at the time. Seventies funk in the early two thousands was not like people were like, "What is this?" Right? Beyonce does it, uh, you know, and I think in no small part because of 
her vocal ability, her vocal performance style. I think also um, the Jay-Z feature helped to modernize the whole thing contextualize well, and, and it. her and her actual performance style. I mean, I think I think that that's video the thing. like <laughs> that video, but also like she was out there at every award show she could doing Crazy in Love. And it was like she was like the rebirth of Tina Turner. Like, like yeah, that yeah, was yeah. what she was like it, doing. And I think that helps sell it too. Yeah. And then it, it's almost like every subsequent version of that song, and I'll, I'll consider all these other songs, subsequent mm-hmm. versions of this song, it was mm-hmm. like getting a Xerox copy that was just getting <laughs> fainter and fainter. And like a ditto machine. Yeah. Like I, I love the Amory song. One thing, great song, mm-hmm. a little bit close to crazy in love thematically mm-hmm. or just sonically something very similar about it. And I remember getting the, getting a rip of one of uh, take this ring and just thinking like, God, I kind of like this song. It's very different mm-hmm. because, um, you know, Tony Braxton has that deep voice, but it's also just kind of slow. It's a little bit more sparse. Like I know that one thing mm-hmm. that they were um, working on with um, Cra- Crazy in Love and One Thing was how much of that instrumental do you get in there? Like at what point do you mm-hmm. drown out the vocalist and at what point does the instrumental become too spare? Like finding that balance. <clears throat> yeah. And I feel like in order to accommodate Tony Braxton's voice on Take This Ring, they had to really drop out a lot of the strong instrumentals that were in those other two songs. Mm. And it gave, the, it gave the impression, overall impression of that song being slightly too slow and slightly mm. too spare mm. to really hold up. And yet, and yet I, 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 I find myself so drawn to that song. Well, and I think there's a, there's a, I was listening to it last night because in it, this is we'll we'll talk about this in a sec. I mean, not a lot because we got a lot to get through. But like, <laughs> it's not available on streaming, right? Yeah. So if you go to Tony Braxton's discography, in true to Barry Hankerson form, like Libra doesn't exist. So you have to like find like album cut or like you know YouTube videos. And we were listening to this video, and, and, and because I can't access like maybe like what that my original MP3s or what's on my old library, um. I can't tell if like the YouTube is just bad, but I think what you're talking about is like, it sounds shrill in a way that like the uh, Amory's version and crazy in love. There's a, there's a more rounded, well-rounded sound. Mm-hmm. Um, part of, what's interesting is that rich Harrison produced the, f- he's the only producer on, on, on Tony's version. So it's not like it was a lesser copy. It wasn't like someone was like, imitating it you know what i mean like he mixed it i mean or he produced it i think it's just like trying to figure out how to how to how to make the formula work well i was gonna say another factor and and she's on a lot of tony braxton songs but like the background singing is background vocals are provided by tamar braxton tony's sister Mm -hmm. and tamar has an excellent voice she's had some hit singles and hit albums in her own right and for a while, while Tony kind of had like faded away, Tamar had kind of seized into the, you know, jumped into the void mm-hmm. and was providing some, you know, to, you know, to be fair, like modern updates of the Braxton sound, right? Like yeah. Love and War, um, you know, the, you know, all of these songs. But there is a, her voice is like a little higher. Yeah. And it can be a little shrill, like, like depending on how it's produced, mm-hmm. it's thinner. And I think that the timber of her voice in the background of Take This Ring can end up making it feel very, like, cacophonous. <laughs> like, like you know, I do like the song. And I remember the song. You know, I just, 
it just wasn't yeah it just doesn't have the legs that the others do so when you listen to take this ring and they're going into the chorus that's you think that's tamar taking like the top harmony yeah okay it is i mean it is one of the it is one of the weird aspects of the song because other than that like in contrast to one thing or in contrast to crazy in love which i feel like has like a big swell of horns like Mm-hmm. It sounds like you have like a big band full of horns. This song mostly just has the beat. You know? Well, it has that dun 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 dun. It's not. Yeah. It's not. The horns are driving it, but not in the same way. It's it. They're not like a fanfare yeah. in the way again. That it's like they are in Crazy in Love. It's very much accommodating Tony Braxton's vocal range, which is a little bit lower. So the everything is a little bit lower. Everything's a little bit slower. Until you get to that chorus, and then you have that weird, yeah, you do have that weird high harmony that just kind of uh-huh. comes in out of nowhere. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's part of the rest of the song. Yeah, but and, yeah. and yet at the same time, I swear to God, there's something so bizarre about this song that I love. It's, it, it's fun. It's, it's just fun. It's sonically, it's. Listeners, seek out Take This Ring. It's on YouTube. There was no video, again, with like the no, there was no video for it. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe I missed it when I was looking for it. But no, there is no video for this song. Um, you can find the audio uh, on YouTube and mm-hmm. you can compa- compare it to, you know, Amory and, um, and Beyonce. But, you know, it's not streaming. This is because there had been the back and forth. This album, as I said, was released in 2005. Um, just for context, Crazy in Love had come out in 2003. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it, there's this sense of, first of all, you know, more than a woman's not a success. And, you know, there's this, me and my boyfriend is gets painted as sort of like a, a ripoff of Beyonce and Jay-Z's 03 Blondie and Cry, Clyde. But even though hers was first, you know, and then, and then you have 2005 comes along and, Tony has a version of crazy in love. It's a little bit behind the time. So it's adding to this narrative that Tony's kind of like off her game. Mm-hmm. She's not, she's not the superstar you think she is. In 2003, she ends up suing Barry Hankerson for $10 million. And she alleges like fraud, deception, and double dealing. In addition to mismanaging her relationship with, with Arista records. So what Tony claims is that, Hank is is that Hankerson told her or told Arista that Tony doesn't want to work with them anymore because apparently there had been still a deal even though she went to work for Blackground she still had like she was still they had left open the possibility that she could record for Arista or do certain things mm-hmm. so she claims that he told her that they didn't want to work with her anymore and when he was talking to Arista that Tony didn't want to work with them anymore while keeping all of this secret, like basically double dealing so that so that she would leave Arista and go to his records. And then once she was there, he like withheld accounting information, like all of this stuff, like she couldn't release certain things, you know, like that it would just became she came this thing. She tried to fire him as her personal manager, um, but he never he wouldn't talk to any of the new management that she brought in. Mm-hmm. And so she was stuck. So it happened with multiple personal managers that she brought in to try and manage her affairs. So this is, I mean, unfortunately, it's kind of in keeping with like what he was doing at the time with JoJo and what he did with Timbaland. Timbaland was involved in all this too. Um, You know, and with the, like the Aaliyah storyline, just kind of, you know, just 
It wasn't great. Yeah. So there's this noise in the background too, while her albums are kind of flopping. And do you think that this builds up on the story of her bankruptcy a little bit? Because well, I think yeah. that this is for me. I remember that I remember this story coming out. I don't think anyone talked about the details of what was going on behind the scenes with Blackground Entertainment. Everyone knew Blackground was kind of fucking up people's businesses, right? Um, but for me, I remember thinking at the time, like, oh, like Tony Braxton really just doesn't know how to handle she's her shit. She's not savvy. Yeah. yeah, I think there's the story really, of like it really well, what reinforced she's like decisions. okay, wait, didn't she already sue? her label like now yeah. she's suing her managers like it, it, you know happening? from the outside like you know it just seems like shouldn't people know how to do this obviously yeah. it's no one teaches anyone how yeah. to do anything when it comes to money yeah. so um well yeah and it and it gets worse right <laughs> because well because because in two so she she sues him in 2007 in 2006 she had um and i don't know if you remember this from when we would go to vegas she replaced wayne newton she took over from wayne newton at the flamingo mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she was headlining the show there and she um she was headlining the show and it was a huge success so they extended her run through like 2008 so this happens it's an another you know her albums aren't doing well. This uh, Vegas, as you know, you can make like, you know, four hundred to seven hundred thousand a week. I think Cher was pulling in like seven fifty a week when she was when she was there in the seventies. So, um, you know, she's making a, making good money. This was her way of kind of she was taking it directly to the fans. You know, she wasn't relying on the albums necessarily because they weren't really doing anything. At one point, she collapses on stage, mm-hmm. and. What ends up happening is there's this diagnosis of a uh, of uh, sorry I'm gonna get this wrong. She is diagnosed with microvascular angina, which is a heart condition, and so it's like this this the the shrinking of like the vessels in the heart. Okay. Um, which makes it very difficult for her to perform. Right, she can't exert herself. Um, basically, what happens is she has to drop out and, of the show, and so the shows are canceled. She had taken out a $70,000 insurance policy with Lloyd's of London to cover her cancellations. Lloyd's, well, they don't pay her. So she sues them for payment. Mm-hmm. They sue her claiming that she never disclo- she knew that she had this condition but did not disclose it. And so they sue her for damages, basically saying you're besmirching our name saying that we're not paying you when you were not truthful to us. Okay. It gets a little tricky as we try and get through all of this because there are like there are restrictions on like what people could say. And mm-hmm. so it's it's a little fuzzy on like how it ends up working out. She settles somehow with Lloyd's, right? And she secures financing to continue the show on her own and to like to, to get financial backers. She does this and gets it all going again at the flamingo, and then she's diagnosed with lupus. Okay. So she gets I diagnosed the lupus. with lupus. I remember the lupus yeah. part of this. Yeah. yeah. So she gets diagnosed with lupus, has to drop out the show a second time. Only this time, because she has self-financed everything, she's now countered, she's now sued by all of the vendors and all of the she's personally sued for all of the things with her with the show now. So she has to file for bankruptcy a second time. And this is also happening while she's suing Barry Hankerson to get out of her contract. 
she talks about it later about just like how humiliated she was because she's exactly like you're saying. She's like, people are, she, she was like, I know people are like, what's wrong with this woman? Like, how is this happening again? She's a superstar. Didn't she learn from her first time? Like, didn't she do all of this? And she talks about how hard it was just, you know, being sick and people not really believing that she was sick because, you know, I think now in hindsight, we're, we're a little more familiar with lupus and autoimmune diseases. And we understand that they're sort of like invisible and sort of they're hard to understand, right? Like they're different for everyone mm-hmm. who has it. Um, you know, and, but at the time, I don't think it wasn't a well-known thing. So, you know, she's been bankrupt before she's fighting with her labels. Now she, is she just claiming illness to get out of this other thing? And she's bankrupt again. It's just like a really, it's just, you know, that's why I think, you know, it just contributes to this idea, like the decline of her in the mid, in the, in the early two thousands in the public consciousness. Um, you know, she ends up after all this. And this is like, again, this is why it kind of seems weird. After this, she's canceled her show. She can't do that. She goes on Dancing with the Stars. Now, if you talk to Tony, these are all things so that she can just keep income coming in, right? Because mm-hmm. she's bankrupt, essentially, uh, or declared bankrupt. So, so all of her assets are kind of locked down and she needs income. So she goes on Dancing with the Stars. She doesn't do well. They get They get eliminated in the fifth round. Um, she ends up coming out of bankruptcy. Her bankrupt, all of her debts are discharged. So she's able to get, so she's, she's, she's fine after this, but her reputation is kind of tarnished. Her music career is on hold. Um, during this period, this is when she comes out with Pulse, which is the album that you talked about before in 2010. Um, it was her first album on Atlantic. Oh, so she had settled with Barry Hankerson. She, after all that, she settles with Barry Hankerson. He lets her out of her contract with the stipulation that she pay him back a three hundred seventy-five thousand dollar advance, which she says she was she had never spent anyway because she hated him. So she was able to do that, but also meant that she he got a percentage of the royalties on her next album. Okay, like he he's just kind of like this crazy dude, man. Like just you know so. I don't know. Like uh, you, I've seen this. We've seen this with the other artists, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. She was happy to do it though because she was she got out of it, and she comes out with Pulse. She's on Atlantic. Pulse has the singles uh, "Yesterday," which you like. Mm-hmm. That's the one that kind of sounds like might have been written by Neo. Um, hands tied. I like Hands Tied. Um, that was a kind of a mid tempo ballad on there, and then. Um, was the other song? Oh, it's uh, "Make My Heart," which which was kind of like a dancey, upbeat. You make my heart. Mm-hmm. She did a dance number to it. I remember this <laughs> dance video. Um, the album kind of to like satisfy. I mean, it was it was fine. Um, there's there's kind it's kind of uneven, but it sort of satisfied the the terms of her dis, the, the contract resolution, right? So, um, you know, she she after this. She goes on, she's looking for other things to do. She ends up signing on to and producing um, Braxton Family Values in 2011. Mm-hmm. And she does this reality show with her sisters Tamar, Tracy, Tawanda, and Trina. And it becomes actually kind of a big hit. And I, I you know, I, I forgive me, I don't know all about 
you know, the Braxtons. Um, I didn't watch the show. I don't know if it's still on. I know, I know that there have been multiple iterations of it. Yeah. But it ends up being kind of, it's good for her. It's good for Tamar. Very good um, for Tamar. Um, yeah. And, you know, it keeps her in the public eye, but like less for music, right? Like music is kind of an afterthought yeah. for her. And so I think this is kind of where people sort of just assume she's done. Like that's, you know, string of bad albums or or not really great albums, bankruptcy again, and then transition to reality TV star. And it feels like this is kind of the inevitable sort of coda <laughs> to Tony Braxton's career. Like, right? Yeah. Really I mean, y- y- you assume that once you're inking a deal for a reality television show that doesn't have to do with your career, it, it mostly just centers around the personalities of your family. At least the mm-hmm. clips that I've seen of yeah. Braxton Family Values, it deals yeah. just a lot with her relationship to her sisters. And incidentally, yes, she is occasionally going out to sing with them or whatnot. Tamar is obviously at that time trying to get her solo career off the ground. Um, but by and large, and I think it was on, was it on WeTV? I think it was on WeTV. It was on WeTV. Yeah, I think so. So it wasn't, and I feel like, it wasn't a prestige channel. Not a prestige channel. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to yeah. pass any judgment on WeTV. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there were echelons of reality television shows that had different tones based on the networks that they were on. I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, for better or for worse, like, you know, your top tier reality television shows were probably on Bravo. They were all yeah. trash. But the ones on Bravo, I feel like had the most prestige. They had the most gloss to them. Mm-hmm. And then by the time you get down to like, oxygen that's where you got the ones that were like bad girls club right yeah yeah it was sort of the it was definitely the quote-unquote guilty pleasure very guilty pleasure you know and it was it was described as that i mean i remember it like being described as a guilty pleasure and like not terrible but like i i i'm not a reality tv person or haven't really been especially like this kind of show yeah um in a you know and so i i i didn't really keep up with her and honestly didn't know what was going on um when she talks about this time uh and and i mean she she kind of had transitioned into doing a very lucrative sort of private performance circuit right sort of a legacy act but to like russian oligarchs and 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 like but she was like look and she she's there's an interview where she's like look the money's good like i guess if i you know and i get to say and all they want to hear are my old songs you hear the horror stories about people going off to like that uh, united arab emirates or like yeah or like uh they go (laughs) like mariah mariah performing for Muammar Gaddafi. (laughs) yeah like you get on a yacht or something for like two million dollars to yeah indulge these you know, rich These oligarchs. And, you and know. that's essentially what she was doing. She was like, and she said, she I said, would never, I'd she be say? so she's scared. Like, she's like, she's like, oh, I love, I love the Russians and they love me. She's <laughs> like, I don't know what the, what it is, if it's the vodka or something, but like, you know, and I'm just like, yeah, to it's your point. It's just like, like a terrified. recipe for getting trafficked in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you see, I mean, the, yeah. yeah. I mean, luck, I mean, I guess at this point, like she's a big enough, I mean, she's still prestige enough to maybe avoid that face she's not like Lindsay lohan <laughs> um who you're just like what's going on there um but yeah no it, it it also does seem like one of those um like in the bond movie right where like you're just you're just gonna get shot up by as collateral damage in like a covert operation yeah as they take out some russian oligarch because you're performing at their private ball or yeah something. you're gonna be what's her face steven spielberg's wife 
singing Kate Capshaw. Oh man, and, and <laughs> Kate Capshaw in what was that Temple of Doom singing? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. At the beginning in Mandarin in the Chinese. The... <laughs> Ni hao. <laughs> Isn't that, what, isn't that how she does it it's like so funny it's, and then the whole place gets shot up and then she ends yeah. up on a 90 minute adventure um 90 minute slightly racial uh racist adventure yeah not my favorite indiana jones but like it is still fun yeah. but anyway. uh yeah anyway so this you know she's hospitalized again in 2012 for lupus issues related to lupus so it's kind of you know it's, it's a, all that to say that like up until 2012, like th- that whole period, it's like it's a little bit of I just, floundering I go back, on her part. Yeah, I go back to secrets. This is the time where I'm just like, I'll listen to secrets sometimes while I'm working or whatever. But like, that's kind of it, right? Like, I just assume that that's she's done because it's Tamar, her. It's her psychic friends network. Era. Well, and Tamar had come out of had come out of her shadow. It was like no longer doing backup, and had come out with her albums mm-hmm. at that point. And so there was the sense that it was like. Tony had like ceded the stage to her younger sister and this was Tamar's turn. Right. And, and, and cause her music, Tamar's music sounded very current. It's, it's good. Like it's, it was, it was that successful combination of sort of the Braxton signature kind of sultry sound, but with very contemporary, um, you know, music uh, accompaniment. So it, so it yeah. worked. And I think um, that Tamar Braxton in line maybe with more of the stars of the time was able and willing to lean into her personality a lot more. Yeah. Like I feel like even now as a person, like personality wise, I know way more about Tamar Braxton than I do about Tony Braxton. Well, and it's interesting because like in this later period, Tony's starting to do the same and lean back in. And I forget like what, a um, like what her personality is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> She's, she does have a strong personality, but very diva, very sexy, very strong, and and lots of swagger, mm-hmm. um, lots of uh, lots of bikini shots uh, that that she posts on her on her Instagram. She's fifty three and she's loving it. She's feeling herself. Um, she looks amazing. But all of this to say that by the time twenty in twenty fourteen, when she releases "Love, Marriage, and Divorce" in twenty fourteen. It was a complete surprise. Like I didn't know that it was a revelation because it's like, oh, she's doing music and then you're listening to it. And this is what I wanted to talk about. Not only is she doing music, it's good. Mm -hmm. It's, it's interesting. So she's, it's not pop. It's like it completely, like if you're going in and you're going to be like, oh, I want another, you're making me high or, you know, you're giving me like, he wasn't man enough. This is not the album for you. But if you uh, are into R and B and sort of like, Babyface classic R and B or like nineties R and B. I mean, even 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 beyond that, just sort of this classic R and B sound. Love, marriage, and divorce is an excellent album. She collaborated with Babyface, and it's a divorce album. And it's a divorce album in that it's specifically about divorce. This isn't just about like breakups. There are a lot of like albums and and songs that focus on breakups. This is about a relationship that ends in divorce, and it sort of chronicles this. Uh, this, uh, this, uh, you know, the, the progression from like discord right up to divorce. <laughs> the last song on the album, I think, is called D Word. Um, <laughs> there are a few divorce albums, you know, or albums that are about divorce. Uh, most recently, we've talked about Mary J. Blige and Strength of a Woman. And, you know, that was after her, her breakup with her, who was her manager at the time, you know, just sort of, it, and it's a really powerful album, one of, one of her best. Um, surprisingly, Frank Sinatra 
is another person who, you know, we don't always think of as, as having like a concept album, mm-hmm. but he did an album in the fifties called um, in the wee small hours. It's an excellent album, but it was in the middle of his relationship with Ava Gardner. And it was a very tumultuous relationship at the time. And it kind of chronicles sort of the, the highs and lows and ultimately the dissolute, it like for, foreshadows the disillusion of their, of their marriage. Um, there's a song on there called I'm a fool to want you. And it is such a good song. If you've never heard it, you, you, a lot of times you think of Frank Sinatra as very full of swagger, like rat pack, kind of a cad, you know, what, what I think younger people or people who haven't really examined, you know, a lot of different musicians output is just like the way Frank Sinatra can tell a story and song and the amount of emotion that he can put in. A lot of times we think he just sounds like, I know I, when I first, heard Frank Sinatra I was like oh man this guy just sounds old it sounds like old music but his version we'll post it um in the playlist of I'm a fool to want you it's about Ava Gardner and their relationship and it's heartbreaking and it's so good (laughs) it's so good so that's one um Fleetwood Mac did rumors John and Christy McVie had 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 just were divorcing you know Steve and Lindsay Stevie and Lindsay were you know on and off again but that's kind of one of those things and um, Marvin Gaye, if we're talking about like classic soul, he has an album called "Here, My Dear," um, and it's a good album. It's it's not the uh, "Let's Get It On" Marvin Gaye that you know, but it's still really good. And as a stipulation of his divorce from his wife, she was going to receive fifty percent of the royalties of his next album. So he put out this album called "Here, My Dear," <laughs> and it was like, here it is. Um, so this is this is a divorce album, and it's it's uh, Tony had divorced her husband Carrie Lewis uh, the year before. Babyface had divorced Tracy Edmonds, um, who was also his business partner, like um, two years before. So they so they bring a lot of like experience to this, and uh, there's some really good songs. Um, uh, it's surprising because, like I said, like she'd done some, she had some kind of duds. <laughs> previous the previous year like i could never really just like listen to an album through you mm-hmm. know you just you pick out your songs this this album is a really smooth listening experience from start to finish um right from the first track roller coaster there's a song on here called i wish and i think it's hilarious the first time i heard it i was like wait a minute because it's tony braxton she's singing in her in her beautiful beautiful way but she's singing like I would I wish I wish I wish she breaks your heart like you did me. I hope you're unhappy. And then the next line is I hope I hope she gives you a disease so that you will see but not enough to make you die, only make you cry like you did to me. It's I remember the first time I heard it I was like what is she <laughs> But it sounds so beautiful. The most heartfelt and, and delivery of those lines you could possibly imagine. Yeah, and you're just like, what? But it it does feel very real, right? Like like, the, like when you're going through a breakup or or you know, and for anyone who's gone through a painful breakup, these are things that you think sometimes, right? Like, yeah. ugh, like I would, you know, but it's done so well. And so this album I have listened to um I think one time we were driving to Vegas and we put it on and I you know what? Adam and I had just started dating. Okay. And I was like you know, when you're in that early phase of your relationship and you're you're hesitant about playing music because like you're like, are they gonna like this? Mm-hmm. What does this say about me? And 
like I said, it feels kind of old school. And I put the I put this album on and I was like, I, I don't know. I I kind of I kind of like this album. It's not really contemporary, but like it's Tony Braxton. And he was like, Oh, this is good. And <laughs> we've been together ever since, people. <laughs> um the man has good taste. What can I say? Um, but yeah, no, it's, you know, it's, it, it is that thing. It's, it's good for like a road trip. Like you can just listen to it. It's not super long, but like you're driving out to Palm Springs this summer or you're just hanging out. Even if you're just working, it kind of flows. It, it never, it never takes you out. Right. Like you never hear it go like, what am I listening to? Like it just, it, you just kind of groove with it. She comes back. They win a Grammy. This album won her seventh Grammy. Um, it won the best R and B album at the Grammys. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's the, that's the, that is the award that Beyonce just won this year for um, Black is King. It's, a, you know, a, a, you know, it's good. <laughs> kind of came out of nowhere to kind of do this. It seems so, like, um, what's the word? I don't want to say it seems tasteful, but uh, it, at, when it came out, it just seemed like. In stark no, it, it was like the taste. It, it was like oh, it was very much in stark contrast to all the things that she had been doing with yeah. kind of these low rent re- reality television series or um, you know failed Vegas residencies. Um, mm-hmm. You know this the all those albums that I had felt were trying to chase something, right? Like this this just yeah. doesn't have that feeling. Like oh, you're not trying to chase these things down anymore. You're just yeah. making music and it felt very well, much they're both like just, oh this is the music that you want to make this is the music yes. that is very genuine to you um i think about um i remember when like the emancipation of mimi came out right and that mm-hmm. was like mariah's redemption arc so to speak that mm-hmm. a lot of people talked about the emancipation of mimi and i don't necessarily agree with this but people talked about it like oh this is like classic mariah this is mariah no longer trying to chase down yeah. this that and the other in order to stay relevant right mm-hmm. that she's just making um we belong together as like a quote-unquote throwback which i yeah. i don't know if i ever really felt that way about that song but i get the sentiment that like sometimes you hear an album and it sounds tortured because it feels like the artist is trying to chase something down in order to remain relevant and sometimes yeah. you hear an album that just feels very at ease and mm-hmm. that's what I think love, marriage, and divorce was for Tony Braxton. It was like yeah. a return to ease for her. Well, and it's, you know, and, and some of that is working with Babyface, right? It's just like this old collaboration. They're old friends. They've been through life at this point together. Yeah. Um, you know, and they can they can just do this and they're playing these characters like very well, um, these musical characters. And so yeah, exactly. Surprises everyone. And she continues this streak in 2018. She she releases Sex and Cigarettes. And even though she's in a better place personally, she still, you know, was processing a lot of things from her divorce and the infidelity that caused the divorce. And you can hear some of that in the first in the first album or in uh, what we call Love, Marriage and Divorce. But, you know, Babyface kind of convinces her to put more of this in words and really just write it all out. And and so she did. She she creates this other this second album. Um, she called it like an organic approach to the album concept. She was listening to her original music and the original sound. And she just tried to get back into that vibe, like to your point of just doing what she loves, making music that she loves and not really feeling like she needed to be quote unquote relevant or, 
you know, chasing like sort of the current, whatever the trends are. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this, 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 the song comes out, sex and cigarettes. Um, Long as I live is maybe the song that you, if you may have heard from this album, it was like the biggest song from the album. Um, it's a good song too. It's it, a lot of it just grooves. Uh, this is her first album on Def Jam and it's the first Tony Braxton album to ever have an explicit label. Oh, there's a song on there called FOH, which is fuck out of here. It's like, if you, if you don't want to be (laughs) these songs, but, but she does it. She's, she's, she's leaning into this swag, right? Like, and, and you'll see this as she gets it as when we talk, you know, in her next album, the one that came out last year, she's leaning into who she is and her place in sort of musical history Mm-hmm. and her place in R&B and her and at this point in her career and not second guessing and just like if you don't like me get out of here <laughs> if you don't want me get out of here I don't need to waste your time I don't need to waste my time don't waste my time mm-hmm. right like I don't need to waste time with you um it, it's just there's some there's good songs on it I like I like that I like uh there's a song called coping um you know this uh th- she toured she hadn't toured in a while she toured for this album and I actually went to the tour I went with my friend Michael um, the opening acts were SWV and Babyface and when I tell you that it was one of the most electric concerts I've ever been to first of all SWV comes out and they kill it like they sound so good like especially live. like they sound so good and they had everyone going right Then Babyface comes out and his whole set is essentially like, he's like, look, I am going to do every song that I have ever written, either myself or for other people. And from start to finish, and it like took everyone on a journey. Everyone's dancing and just like singing and just fully enjoying themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. Then it's almost like, Tony, what are you doing? Because she comes out and you're like, okay, we've already been at this high. And then Tony Braxton kind of, you know, part of this, part of this is because of her lupus. Okay. <laughs> she can't, she can't exert herself. Like she, like her performance style, there's a reason she doesn't tour that often. And like, it's, it's, you know, touring is hard and it's, you know, physically tiresome. Um, she, she did like a spoken word version of you mean the world to me. Huh. Like where she basically was like, you mean the world to me. You are my everything. I swear. The only thing that ever mattered. Mattered to me. (laughs) And you could, my cousin was there and we're like texting each other from across the room. I was like, what is this? What's (laughs) happening? Because like it was, it was, it was crazy because you get all this 90s nostalgia built up with the opening acts and then like, here's the big songs here's tony and then it kind of wasn't like i i feel bad because like it's like she clearly wanted to do it and she looks amazing and she still sounds good but she just can't she can't exert herself in the way she Mm -hmm. otherwise she'll like you know her lupus will flare up again okay she basically preserved herself right up to the end because her last song was unbreak my heart and she did that she did kill that she um i guess she she'd lost an aunt or something Okay. And she basically, she like sat on the edge of the stage and like dedicated the song to her. And she sounded amazing. She sounds fantastic. But like that took it all out of her. So like 
you know, I, I don't know that I would say go see Tony Braxton. Okay. <laughs> unless unless SWV and Kenny and 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 Babyface are opening again because then it's totally absolutely 100% worth it. Um but, you know, uh the 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 the, the recordings are great. Okay. <laughs> it was one of the weirdest concerts I've been to. Okay. Um so that was in 2019 when she did that tour and in 2010 or 2020 last year she released her 10th studio album uh this is her first on island she wrote and produced a significant amount on the record um and it's a short album it's i forget how many tracks it's not that many tracks she she show, shows that um as as pitchfork said shows the familiar voice style and swagger of tony to be well preserved um unfortunately like the, a lot of the album was finished pre-pandemic but still needed some work and so she had to finish the album sort of on her own like recording in her closet oh but but you know she she actually she was like i loved it she's like i'm used to just kind of working and and doing it on her own she said she like drove around um in her car and would like listen to tracks and kind of like just play them after she was listening to the radio to see like how it blended with like everything that was that's happening right now. But but again, sort of a return to form. Like she's not really chasing any trends here. You know, there's a couple up tempo songs like Dance, which I, I don't really like. Adam likes dance. There's a song called Do It, which is a collaboration with Missy, and that's a pretty good song. That's fun. Um, she also collaborates with um her, mm-hmm. the artist her on gotta move on and that's again this is like really good like kind of r&b it's very again she's leaning into what she's good at my favorite song is the title track spell my name and spell my name equals like put some respect on my name and she talks about how like she is really leaning into this like i said who she is she's been around for like 25 30 years she is a legend or an icon in this space. And she's like, I'm going to assert that. And it's been really fun. And Spell My Name is like, I listened to it and I'm like, I, I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, this, she's not chasing a sound, but it sounds current. And it sounds like a really good deployment of like all the things that she's good at in a song that sounds perfect for like 2020, 2021. So, these last three albums, Love, Marriage, and Divorce, Sex and Cigarettes, and Spell My Name, excellent albums. There are reasons to revisit Tony. Yes, she's had some ups and downs. She's been all over the place. Some of the output has been, you know, uneven. But as we talked about, like, there's so many reasons for that in the intervening, like, 20 years, essentially, mm-hmm. um, 15 to 20 years. But she's worth giving a listen. She's still here. She's still putting out good music. And... um should spell her name i love that on this latest album she went back to short-haired tony braxton yeah sure short-haired, yeah. short-haired tony braxton that's like iconic tony braxton mm-hmm. just she looks amazing she's got those cheekbones she's got to show them off I, I feel like any other time that i saw her with long hair like mm, that's not the tony it's braxton just different it was it was a very that's a long hair tony braxton is very uh mid-2000s it's very pedestrian tony braxton if you ask me <laughs> Yeah, it it kind of tamps her sh- like like what do you call it? dims her shine? Yeah, a little bit. I just um, feel like it's part of her iconic look in my mind. And maybe this mm-hmm. is because when she debuted in like 92 93, she had she had that short hair. Really short hair. And you know, not a lot of women feel comfortable or can pull off really short hair. 
Yeah. And well, she yeah. Tony well, Braxton's it's like got those saying. cheekbones. She's got the heart-shaped face. Uh, well, it's 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 all it's like I'm saying. She's she's returning to form. Yeah. Right. Like this is a return to form from her. There's not like huge ballads on it. Like it's not like a big, you know. There's not like that. But these are some good songs. So they're all very mid. Definitely kind of like mid-tempo grooves. Very your mm-hmm. style. Very my style. And I wasn't sure how much you know mileage you'd get out of it, but uh, I I do think that like even if you don't. Even if you don't come away with it and you're like, they're not your favorite albums, what I would like to say is Tony Braxton is producing excellent work right now. And we can move on from the from the the narrative that like she's kind of a has been and washed up. Like she's back, she's doing things now. You know, of course, like there's a shelf life on like how long you can be like the number one anything. Mm-hmm. But she's doing really good work now and should be respected for that. And um, you know, those those albums deserve a listen and that's tony braxton awesome thanks for that (laughs) you're welcome it was great Um, you want to take us home i do want to take us home um hey guys uh special thanks to adam elder for composing our theme music songs and videos featured in today's episode will be posted to our website floppredeemer.com remember to rate review and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice and check us out on social media at floppredeemer on instagram and twitter and on facebook at facebook.com slash floppredeemer as always uh send us an email send us an email Send us an email. We ask, we ask it. We ask you every time. Send us an email, floppredeemer at gmail.com. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>